Those, Father, we um, thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, just loving us and caring about us, uh, Father, for creating us. And Father, we just pray, I want to pray for, our, especially for our staff, that you would just be with our staff, just renew and refresh and revive them, God. I know they all are busy and doing a lot, Father, but I just pray you would just um, help them to hold up under the weight of what they're doing, Father. And Father, we just pray that today you would be worshipped and that you would be glorified through this worship service as the choir sings and as we sing with the choir, as Catherine leads music, as Bryson speaks, Father, we just pray that you would um, find our worship acceptable and just speak and sing through all of us, Father. We love you, we thank you, and just ask this in your name. Amen. Good morning. If you'll stand this morning, we're going to begin worship with singing Blessed Assurance. Born 
continue worshiping together and sing Great is Thy Faithfulness. this morning. 
Dear gracious Heavenly Father, God, Lord, thank you so much just for allowing us to come into your house and worship this morning, God. Lord, thank you that um, you are our God that's higher and stronger than any other. And for that reason, God, nothing can stop us. Lord, may we be um, encouraged and empowered and just rejuvenated this morning to go out and um, share your word, God. And Lord, as we um, open up the book of Isaiah, I pray that your word will be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And may we hide its words in our hearts, God. Lord, be with Bryson as he brings the word. Speak directly through him, God. And just thank you um, for all you've done and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Children are going with Sarah Beth in the back for Children's Church. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And I want to go ahead and say this for, for uh, Rebecca. We're going to start in 819, actually. So, sorry. Um, I, sh- I meant to tell you earlier, and I didn't. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 8, verse 19 is where we're actually going to start. But our focus this morning is going to be on the first seven verses of chapter 9. Um, as you all know, we are spending 20 weeks walking through the book of Isaiah. So last week we were in Isaiah chapter 6, and this week we'll be in Isaiah chapter 9. And so the hope is that you'll read along with us as we move through the book of Isaiah. And uh, we have a, actually a plan in the back that you can take, and you can read along with us through the book. But we are focusing in on the good news of God's glory in the book of Isaiah. And so this morning I want to begin by asking a question, and if you got the notes this week and you looked at them, maybe you've had a chance to kind of mull over this a little bit, but I want to ask the question, and it has a purpose, have you ever experienced what you would consider utter darkness? As I thought about this question, I thought about the type of darkness where you can't see your hand in front of your face, the type of darkness where If you stay in it for too long, all of the greatest fears come to the forefront of your minds. I know we live in a world, we live in a place where light is readily available at almost all times. But when I think about this, I think about a a night for me in May of 2004. I was playing baseball and the sirens in our town in Borden, Indiana went off saying there was a tornado warning. And so we, they called the game off, thankfully, and we jumped in the car, and my dad said, you know what, let's go get some ice cream. We'll, it looks like it's going to go south of our town, so let's go north. Let's go get some ice cream, and then we'll come back when the storm is over. Well, it went straight through our town. I've never been so thankful for ice cream in my life. But as we came back, you know, we, we, we get home, and there's no light anywhere. It's the middle of the night. All the power's out. We're feeling our way to the door, and you lay in bed at night, and there's no noise, there's no uh, nightlight, it's cloudy, there's no moonlight, and you just lay there, and, and it's dark. There was destruction all around us, there was fear, and there was darkness. And I, I set that thought process, I set that intentionally, because what we're going to read this morning The setting of our passage, the context, is utter darkness in Judah. Utter darkness for the people of God. 
as we read along through Isaiah, we're going to see a lot of really good news, but we're also going to see a lot of really bad news. And most often, in order for us to truly appreciate the good news, we must fully feel the weight of the bad news. In order to truly appreciate the light, you often have to sit for a while in the darkness. And so just to give you an idea of where we're at before we get into the reading, the nation of Israel right now is split in two. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The king of Israel of the north has aligned himself with the king of Syria in order to attack Judah and try to replace Ahaz's king. Ahaz, king of Judah, instead of trusting in the Lord's promise, aligns himself with the king of Assyria. If you know anything about Assyria, they don't like anyone but themselves. And so God speaks through Isaiah and he tells him ultimately that even though Assyria will be used as a tool to aid Judah, eventually Assyria will come and attack Judah and will be part of their downfall, part of their exile. We see physical darkness for the people of God. We see spiritual darkness for the people of God. And we see impending darkness for the people of God. But what we're going to read this morning and what I hope to convey to you is that even though these people are in an utter darkness, even though judgment is coming, even though leadership has failed, even though they are angry and broken and hurt and sad and distressed, even though they're in utter darkness of their own doing, there is a hope, there is a light in this passage that breaks through the darkness. Different words are used in different translations, but in 9-1 it says, Nevertheless. Your translation may say, but, in the spite of darkness, there is light. There is hope. This is a sign that God will provide hope and light and help for his people. And so the question we're going to answer is, what is this hope? Or better yet, who is this hope? So let's read the passage together as we move into Isaiah chapter 8. Read along with me, starting in verse 19. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? So here we see already the people of God are, are searching for wisdom in other means other than God. In, in spite of God's speaking to them through Isaiah, they're, they're going to pagan, pagan ways of, of finding wisdom and seeking wisdom. And Isaiah asked the question, why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into, and here's the word, utter darkness. Nevertheless, chapter 9, verse 1, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. 
They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this morning your son would be glorified. Lord, I pray that as we come together as those who live lives that at times feel broken and and in despair, Lord, that, that, that we experience the darkness both spiritually and physically of our lives, Lord, that we would know that there's a hope, that there's a light for your people, Lord, and that even 700 years before Christ, Isaiah knew that this, this light was coming, and even 2,000 years after he was born, Lord, that we understand that Jesus still is the light of the world. And Lord, I pray that this morning we would come to, to recognize and understand that, that he is an ever-present help for his people. Lord, that we can daily walk by the hope that we have in Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen. A main idea to kind of help us lead through this passage is this. It's through Jesus... God provides a light that breaks through the utter darkness of our lives to provide us with hope and salvation that we do not deserve. Through Jesus, God provides a light that breaks through the utter darkness of our lives to provide us with hope and salvation that we do not deserve. And so I hope that what you've seen already is the shift that takes place in this passage. From 8.22 to 9.1, there's a movement here from darkness to light, from gloom to glory, from sadness to joy. This shift has taken place, and it finds its culmination in verse 6, in this Christmas passage, right? You heard of Christmas in July. Well, now you get Christmas in August, right? Because I can't, I, I dare you to Google Isaiah 9 sermon as I did this week and find one that's not preached in either December or January. Because this is a passage that we turn to all the time. It's a prophecy of Jesus' birth. And so you can go to Luke 1, you can go to Matthew, you can go to all these places, and you can find passages that point to this being a Christmas passage. And I understand that. But what I want to do this morning is not take us to Christmas. I want to take us to our own times of darkness. I want to focus on these four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And how they encompass the character of Jesus as the one who brings us out of our darkness. What is it about wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace that would bring hope to the people of Judah 700 years before Christ and bring hope to you and I here today 2,000 years after Christ? What is it about those names. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. That's a long introduction, and I have a lot of material. So here we go. Number one, we find the presence of the wonderful counselor. The presence of the wonderful counselor. When Isaiah begins to describe this child, this gift given to the people, 
And he offers these four names. The first name that he gives is Wonderful Counselor. And when I read that, I think to myself, in the context of this passage, that seems a little underwhelming. Enemies are caving in around the people of Judah. They are on the verge of warfare over and over and over again. They sit there in distress, wondering what's happened to their kingdom, what's happening to their king. And Isaiah says, don't worry, I have for you a wonderful counselor. I don't know about you, but I wish he would have led with mighty God. It seems a little bit more intriguing, a little bit more movement towards something greater if you would have led with that. But he leads with wonderful counselor. And I believe the reason is that the first thing that a people in utter darkness needs is a leader with a plan on how to get out. A person who's very strong, with no sense of direction, cannot get you out of a difficult situation, a utter darkness. I've been, and this is just an example, I've been in counseling before. And I'm sure Bill can attest to this. Bill is a counselor. The first meeting when it comes to counseling is always the same. The counselor must get to know you. What's going on with you? How are, how are things? What seems to be the problem? And you spend that first meeting divulging all of this information to this person in hopes that they can devise a plan to help you get out of whatever situation that you're in. But a counselor can present no plan or necessary change if he or she doesn't know you and what your need is. The last thing that a people in utter darkness needs is unsolicited advice from unknowing strangers. You've, you've been there before. One of my biggest pet peeves are people who tell me, I know what you're going through who have never been what I've been through. A counselor who doesn't understand your situation is of no help to you. And here is why Isaiah leads with wonderful counselor, because the fact that this term, wonderful, what it points to is it points to the Messiah. It points to Jesus' divinity. To the fact that Jesus is divine, that he is all-knowing, that he is all-encompassing. This is why the author of Hebrews right, can say in Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are and did not sin. When we see the description of wonderful counselor, what we find is a divine, miraculous king with a perfect and personal plan for his people. God is not a far-off God and Christ is not a far-off Savior. He is one who is present with his people. We, we get to enjoy the presence of a wonderful counselor. Throughout the Bible, we find a God who walks with his people and dwells with his people. And if you go to the end of the book, the whole goal is for God to be present with his people in the new heavens and the new earth and dwell with them forever. The amazing thing about Jesus as a wonderful counselor is that rather than you having to tell Jesus about you, Jesus really gets to tell you about you. Because the reality is, is that Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. What the people of Judah needed was not another plan by another man, but they needed a wonderful counselor, a divine source of wisdom 
a divine source of strength, a, a plan that came from outside of themselves. Some people say that no one knows you better than you know yourself, but biblically that isn't true. Jesus, through whom you were created, who knew you before the creation of the world, knows you better than you. We find this truth throughout Scripture. If you look at Jesus' interactions with people, if you go to John chapter 3, if I remember John chapter 3, Nicodemus, he's this wonderful religious man, and he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if you were not with him. He has an idea. Nicodemus has this idea of what he needs. And what does Jesus say? Verse 3, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. He tells Nicodemus, I know that you have a plan, but here's the thing. My plan is greater than your plan, and your plan can't get you to the kingdom. John chapter 4, Jesus and the woman at the well. She's out there getting her water. We talk about a, a person, a woman, who's in utter darkness with her life. I ask that you go read that story on your own. But she's asking about physical water, and she's arguing about where to worship. And Jesus brings to her this idea that you don't need just physical water. You need living water. You need something greater than you can find at this, at this vessel. You need something greater than you can find at this source. And so in verse 28 and 29, after Jesus has told her about the sin in her life and her need to, to find a greater source of comfort and a greater source of salvation. In verses 28 and 29 of John chapter 4, it says this, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? What we must understand about Jesus is that with him, we have present with us through the word and through the Holy Spirit a wonderful counselor, a divine planner, a miraculous overseer who knows us better than we know ourselves and knows what we need even when we don't know it. And this ought to lead us to recognize that to fight against the counsel of Christ is to forsake the instruction of a perfect Savior in order to please our own flesh and pride. I want us to recognize for a moment that God cares about every aspect of your life. And for the people of Judah, what they needed at this time was someone who could lead them out of darkness. Someone who in and of themselves was a light. And what you and I need to know is that we can take our hurt, we can take our discomfort, we can take our fears... And we can bring them before a wonderful counselor who already knows them and has a perfect plan to bring us through them. What Judah needed and what we need is a wonderful counselor. And I would say, in all aspects of life, it would be of your benefit to lay down your plans for the sake of his. For many of us, myself included, I like the plan of salvation. I like the plan of getting to heaven. But sometimes we're not so much a fan of the plan of how to live now. But I'm here to tell you the plan of sanctification, the plan of holiness, the plan of daily living, the plan of parenthood, the plan of family, the plan of 
all things, the plan of marriage that God gives us is greater than any plan that we could come up with on our own. His plans are perfect, and he's presented them to us, and he helps us. He's a wonderful counselor. Secondly, we have the power of the mighty God. The power of the mighty God. As soon as I read this, I had songs immediately come into my head. Now, I was struggling on whether I was going to say these or sing them. I think I'm going to say them um, to save you guys from that. Um, but as I read these verses, I thought of Charlie. My, my son Charlie has a playlist on my Spotify. He calls his songs. So anyone, anytime one comes on, he says, this is my song. He's got like 46 songs. Okay, They're all his. You can't have them. But anyway, one of the songs that's on there is called My God is So Big. I don't know if you've heard this song before, but it basically goes like this. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. That's the whole song. Okay, and it plays for like three minutes. And so that thing is, I mean, he'll play it nine times in a row. I, I've taken trips an hour long, and I've heard my God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do a million times. Okay, you can't do it without the clap. And as that song came into my head, I thought of some other songs, and I don't think Miss Vaughn is here this morning, but I know one of her favorite songs is, What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God we serve. And as I thought of that song, I, I, it, it kept coming to my mind all the songs and all the, the things that we shout out for joy of the mightiness and the power of God. My God is mighty to save. And we sing these songs and the reality in these verses is that Isaiah is pointing to the fact that the coming Messiah, the king that will sit on the throne forever, the one who will reign in your life and my life is a mighty God. And I think a lot of times it's easier for us to sing it than to believe it. It won't simply be a man on the throne of David. It isn't simply a man who came, but it's, a, it's, a, it's God himself who came down and took on a human nature to bring us salvation. God will come down, Isaiah says, and he will be the mighty God and Savior for his people. And in Isaiah, 4, Isaiah verse 9, verses 4 and 5, Isaiah describes this victory for his people. So let's read, let's read 4 and 5 together. Isaiah 9, 4 and 5. It says, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So the coming king, the mighty God, will be a king, will be a God of what? Will be a God of salvation. He will be a king who will bring salvation for his people, who will bring them out of the darkness. And notice what it says in verse 4, as in the day of Midian's defeat. Does anybody remember Judges chapter 7, Gideon and Midian's defeat? If you don't, I'll give you a little recap of what happened. Israel messed up. Everybody's shocked by that. Once again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so God gave them over to the, to the Midianites. And of course, then they repented and they called on the name of the Lord and he sent Gideon. Now, Gideon shows up to this, this battle with 30,000 men, pretty good number. 
Okay, if I'm going into a battle and I have 30,000 people with me, I'm feeling pretty good. And what does the Lord say? The Lord said, this is too many men. So he says, this is what he says, if anybody's scared, you can leave. And 20,000 men leave. So now they're down to 10. God says, that's too many men. So he takes them down to this water and, and devises this plan. And, 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 and after this plan is put in place, 300 men are left. 300 men against an army that's described as thick as locusts in the field. And God told Gideon for the 300 of them to blow their trumpets at the same time. And when they did, the Midianite army turned on each other. And, the, and, and, the, and Gideon and the Israelites were able to defeat them because God caused, caused chaos in the Midianite army. But all of this can be found, the, the point of all of this is found in Judges 7-2. And it says this, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands. Or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. So notice that whether it was 30,000 men or whether it was 300 men, the Lord was the winner of salvation. But he displayed his might and his power so that people will know who actually won the victory. What we must understand is that in the face of utter darkness, I want you to get back to that place. In our times of deepest hurt and turmoil, the call of God's people is to draw from the strength of the one who has won their salvation. Not to rely on our own strength in which we could have never been saved. Many times in my own life, I trust in God for salvation, but for sustaining me, I want to somehow find it within myself. And I don't know if you find yourself in this place, but I want you to know that you have a God who's won your salvation and he will sustain you until the end. That's what the Bible says. So in times of darkness, the call of the Christian is not to man up. And the call of the Christian is not to give up, but the call of the Christian is to look up. To look up. To trust that the, the, the Savior who God sent on your behalf to save you is mightier than you, lives within you, and will bring you through your utter darkness. As Christians... We must recognize that God is not surprised by your weakness. He isn't offended by it either. For the Christian, weakness and humility are not a sign of God's displeasure, but often a prerequisite to God's power in you. Paul speaks of this, one of the greatest, for lack of a better term, one of the greatest to ever do it. The goat, you might say of the apostles, Paul? What did he say in 2 Corinthians 12? He said there was a thorn given to him. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We must trust that the God who saves us is the God who will sustain us. The God who brought us in the deep, out of the deepest darkness of our sin can bring us out of the deepest darkness of our everyday life. 
that he is more powerful than we can ever imagine. He offers that power to us through his spirit. Let us stop putting small g attributes onto our big G God. You aren't too far for God to save. Some of you in here think that you are too far from God for God to save you. Not the God that I know. Not the God that takes us from death to life. Some of you think your problem is too big for God to work through. Well, God rose from the dead. I want us to recognize and see that we serve a mighty God who gives his people power in their weakness for his glory and for their good. What Judah needed was not a powerful man. They needed a mighty God. Thirdly, the compassion of the everlasting Father. The compassion of the everlasting Father. I'm pulling this out just for time's sake. Okay. Compassion of the everlasting Father. When we look at this, to know the history of Judah, you would see a pattern of kingship. Not too long ago, my wife Brooke and I read through First and Second Kings together in the mornings. I got behind, so she, she finished a little earlier than me. But we read through those books together. And if you ever read through First and Second Kings, what you find is a pattern of kingship. It usually goes something like this. In the year of blank, king of blank, blank took the throne of Judah. And this is how it usually goes. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Unlike his father David, he ruled this many years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then he died. It's usually the pattern. And if you read through First and Second Kings, it usually goes like this. Bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king. Bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king. Right? That's kind of the pattern. You see a lot more bad than you see good, but there's little hints of hope. Little hints of times of, of, of restoration and times of revival in the Israelite and the Judaite people. But in this moment, you need to know... That Judah is in a bad time. I want to give you a little taste of who's on the throne right now in Judah. In 2 Kings 16, I'm going to read just a few verses. 2 Kings 16, this is what it says about Ahaz. All right? In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Ramalia, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 16 years, and unlike David his father, ding, 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 he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel, of Israel and even sacrificed his own son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. That's who's on the throne of Judah right now. That's the father of their, that's the father of their nation right now. One who burns his own son in a pagan ritual. And so when, when Isaiah comes and he says, listen, I have for you an everlasting father. Everlasting. Eternal. Never ending. When you think about the people of Judah, all they've had is bad kings and good kings who didn't last. And so when we look at this, the people would see the word everlasting, and it would intrigue them. As, as, as long as it was a good king, everlasting sounds great. Everlasting sounds wonderful. And so Isaiah says, here's an everlasting father to sit on the throne. 
And so how can we say, though, as we read this, that Jesus, the Son, can be the everlasting Father? It's a question that comes in many people's minds. In John 14, I think we find how it's possible for Jesus to be called everlasting Father. Philip, good old Philip, he asked Jesus, he says, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. This is towards the end of Jesus' life, and, and he's, he's trying to encourage them. And Philip's like, if you would just show us the Father, we would, that would be enough for us. And this is what Jesus says. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The reason that Isaiah can call the Messiah everlasting father is because it is through the Messiah, through Jesus, that God will fully display himself. Just yesterday, I was in Walmart. I'd already written this example down before we went. I was in Walmart, no, yesterday, two days ago maybe, and I saw Miss Kay Bimel. You know what she said? She said what a lot of people say. Man, Charlie is just like a copy and paste of you. And usually I like those compliments because they'll say, Charlie is so cute, he looks just like you. I say, well, thank you, All right? But in character and in personality, though he represents me some, he's not completely me because he has way too much brook in him to be completely me. But the difference is, as we read in Colossians 1, is that the Son is the image of the invisible God. And we read in Hebrews 1, chapter th- uh, verse 3, is that the Son is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so Isaiah can look forward to the Son that's to come, to look forward to Christ and say, he's going to be an everlasting father for his people. And when I think about that, you may think about your, your wonderful father's. You may think about all their great characteristics. I immediately thought of the one parable that I can think of where Jesus speaks about fatherhood. You may know it from Luke 15. It's the parable of the two sons. Jesus is speaking, and he comes to this, this group of people. Some of them are, are the, the religious people. Some of them are the far-off people. And he, and he, says, he talks about this parable, and in, Luke 15, he says, you know, one ton takes his inheritance and he runs off to live in debauchery and wasteful living. He hits rock bottom. He devises a plan to return to his father and ask to be a servant. And as he approaches, this is what it says in Luke 15. It says, he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and was found. And so they began to celebrate. And so as I think about Jesus, as I think about the Messiah as the everlasting father, there's one song in my mind right now that comes to, I don't know why songs have been the thing this week, but it's, there's a song out called Run to the Father. It's a wonderful song, and it's true that we can repent and we can run to the Father, but the beauty of the gospel is not only can we run to the Father, but the one who Isaiah calls everlasting Father has run to you. 
Notice in the story that the dad does not sit there just waiting for the son to return. He jumps down and he runs to the, fa- runs to the son. He, he looks at him and he's, a, he's an everlasting father. Even when the son was far off, the father sat there waiting for the son to return. Even whenever he was, he was living in those types of lives, before, um, before he, was, he had returned, the father loved the son. In the same way, Jesus did not leave us here on our, on our own, but he came to us. He came down. So for those of you who feel the shame of your sin and are afraid of what will happen if you run to Jesus, what you need to know is that Jesus will run to you. For the people of Judah, the everlasting father that is to come is one who will bring them out. He will run to them. He will help them and save them. He will, he will put his compassion on them. He will care for them. Those of you who are his children who feel as if you have run too far and are, are, are in a darkness you can't escape, you need to know that Jesus is an everlasting father whose compassion and care and correction will never cease in your life. There will be times of darkness, but we have a light. We have a hope. We have an everlasting father. How long will God's love stay on you forever? How long will his salvation in your life reign forever? God is in Christ as an everlasting father. And lastly and quickly, we have the promise of the Prince of Peace. The promise of the Prince of Peace. I want us to, to look at verses 1 and 2 really quickly. It's interesting in, in verses 1 and 2. It says, In the past he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations. By the way of the scene. So Zebulon and Naphtali were the northern, the northern cities of Israel. And so if you don't, if you don't know, um, these were the first attacked by Assyria. So every time there was an attack, everybody attacked from the north. And so these, these two cities were just devastated over and over again. They, they had been in darkness the longest. And so Isaiah tells them here, even though they've been humbled in the past, one day they will be honored. Does anybody know where Jesus began his ministry? In Galilee. And Matthew 4, it actually quotes this. It says, Leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And then he reads Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. So God, through Christ, brought the Prince of Peace to the land of the broken. To the people who felt the most broken, God began his ministry in Christ. God has a heart for those in turmoil and those in hurt. And so as we look at this, three different types of peace that Jesus brings. He brings peace with God. Outside of Christ, we have no peace with God. We are enemies. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He brings peace with others. If you look at Ephesians 2, right after Paul speaks about salvation, he says in Ephesians 2, 14, he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one, a new creation. You and I can sit here in this room and have peace with one another, not because we like the same things, but because we have the same Savior. And Jesus brings the peace of God. In the face of distress, we have peace that passes understanding. John 14, Jesus promises, I leave my peace with you. My peace I give you. 
In the past three weeks, I've been to two funerals. One for a 58-year-old mother and grandmother. One for a 17-year-old son and grandson here in Heard County. And as I thought about what the sons of the mother must be feeling and the daughters of the mother, and as I thought about what the parents of the son must be feeling, I sat there and listened to what was said and what was amen and what was preached and what was sung about in these two services. You know, there's one very unique similarity. The one source of hope, the one promise that these families held on to is that their mother, their grandmother, their son, their grandson had peace with God through Jesus Christ. And because of that, they had peace in the midst of this utter darkness. God has promised his peace to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And notice what it says in verse 7. It says, the greatness of his government and of his peace will increase. There will be no end. The peace we have now will expand. It will grow in us and through us. And one day we'll have perfect peace when we're with our Prince of Peace in eternity forever. I believe it's a peace that is promised not only to lead us out of darkness, but a peace that sustains us in times of darkness. You don't have to find peace anywhere else but the one who walks through darkness with you and brings you out to glorious light. The people of Judah needed hope. They needed any hope. They needed any light that they could. And so Isaiah speaks and he says, listen, there's one coming and he will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. So as we conclude, I want us to consider this question. How can you and I trust that this will come about? Because I'm not naive to think that some of you right now are going through a situation or in a time in life in which this seems unattainable for you. It seems unrealistic for you. I think sometimes we underestimate, some of us, underestimate the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of many of the people who sit around us on a daily or weekly basis. And sometimes I think we underestimate the brokenness of ourselves. How is it that in moments of our greatest physical, mental, emotional, spiritual darkness, we can trust that there's a light, a hope, a savior that will break through this darkness and bring us through this darkness? Well, I think verse 7 tells us this. At the very end, look what it says at the end of verse 7. It says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What Isaiah describes here is that it isn't your effort or your ability or your worthiness that, God, that moves God to keep his promises. It's his own zealousness for his glory and for his people. We serve a God who is not distant but close, who does not, is not hands-off but is hands-on and, and moving his plan in a direction that he has planned and, and being with his people and bringing glory to himself through his people. It's his own excessive fervor and determination that will do it. It is the fact that God is devoted to his plan and to his glory and devoted to his people. And so 700 years after this, he showed how zealous he is by sending his own son to step out of eternity into time, to live a perfect life, 
to die a perfect death, to raise from the dead, to ascend, to do this is the greatest showing of God's love and God's zealousness for his glory and for his people. It says in Matthew 27 that as Jesus hung on the cross, in verse 45, from noon to three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. How can we trust that God will bring us out of darkness? Because the zeal of the Lord was to place his son into utter darkness to bring us out of our greatest darkness. God has done the work. The greatest darkness of our lives is our separation from God. There is nothing you will face in life greater than your own sin and your own helplessness. And God has made a way to bring you out of the darkness and the death of your sin into the light and life that is found in his son. And if he can take us from death to life, he can bring us from darkness to light. No matter what we face in this world, we can know the zeal of the Lord Almighty will do this. And we can trust, no matter how long the darkness lasts, that we have a Savior who will take us from darkness to light, who will break through the utter darkness of our lives. We have hope. Just as the people of Judah, 700 years before Christ, we have hope, 2,000 years after Christ, in the one we call Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We are so thankful, Lord, for your word. Lord, we're thankful for the insights and the divine guidance you gave Isaiah so that we can look at this passage and now living past the, the incarnation and the, and the resurrection, living on the other side of Christ's life, we can look back and see how beautiful it is that the same promise that sustained the people of Judah is the same promise that sustains your people now. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who has never has never given their life over to you, who's never seen the glory of what you did in Christ to, to, to forgive our sin and to give us new life, Lord, I pray that this morning you would stir in their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, for those in this room who, who know you but have but are experiencing times of utter darkness. I pray that you would, you would give them hope, Lord, that you would bring them to a place where they, they recognize their need for you, Lord, that they would, would be sustained by your promises, Lord. I can't help but think of what Jesus said, is that in this life we will have trouble, but take heart because he has overcome the world. Lord, we, save, we, we serve a Savior who is greater than all others. Lord, we, we serve a Savior who is greater than any circumstance. And Lord, I pray that we would not live as those who don't recognize the Savior that we serve. Lord, you are Savior, you are Lord, you are King of our lives. And from that, Lord, we move forward and we glorify you through all things, knowing that you're with, you're with us. In your name we pray, amen. As we come together and sing, if you have... Anything you need to talk about, if you just need to pray, it's open to you. But you stand as we sing.
service just want to remind you that tonight back to normal service times choir at five and then um, bible study and kids choir at six for all ages and so i hope that you'll be a part of that and uh, this wednesday starting back normal services as well Um, if you have any questions about that you can you can see me Um, anything else before we leave all right well as Catherine leads us Um, in our benediction. Just uh, pray that y'all have a great day in the Lord and know that he is with you and uh, we serve an awesome God. And uh, just pray that that would be on our hearts and our minds as we we leave. I was going to tell y'all, Miss Joyce had a last minute text come in that her daughter had got, her granddaughter had gotten saved and baptized this morning. So that's where Miss Joyce is. She's with her granddaughter this morning. Um, but we were really fortunate to have two musicians here. So Miss Becky stepped up and led from the organ and it was beautiful this morning. So thank you, Miss Becky. Let's sing um, the doxology this morning. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
Fantastic week.